Thanks, buddy. I'm going to go out and ride my bike now. Um, you're probably going to the Patonk competition, right? Indeed. Yeah, nice. That's what's going to happen today. Nice. Yep. Okay, good luck with that. Say hi to Christian and Bob and, and uh, Phil and the whole crew over there. I will, I will. Hey, one last quick question. The tour is over, isn't it? After yesterday, these idiots missing out so much time. I mean, Thibaut Pinot is going to lose more time in the TT. Richie is not going to make up a minute 40 or two minutes to Garen Thomas. It's basically now, is Thomas going to win or Egan Bernal? The rest is actually really not interesting. If you're an insider, you know? Olympic medalist and Tour de France podium finisher, Coach Bobby Julik and Outskirts visionary Gus Morton invite you to put your socks on. From insightful analysis into our sport's most iconic races and racers to entertaining, educational, and actionable advice, Fizzo is an illuminating deep dive into the art and science of bike racing. Be prepared to put your socks on. Hello and welcome to another episode of Put Your Socks On. My name is Bobby Julik, and as always, I'm here with Gus Morton. How you living today, Gus? Mate, I'm really well. I'm feeling uh, very refreshed after our rest day yesterday, and uh, I hope you're feeling nice and rested as well. Yeah, it was a good one. Got to uh, ride my bike, do some chores around the house, go to the store, even went out and walked uh, nine holes of golf. So I am back on it, ready to go. Mate, ticking all of the life boxes there. It might have been a rest day for the riders, but as we know, uh, there's no such thing as a rest day at Latour. And uh, before we get going into the uh, into the regular show, we wanted to touch on a story that has kind of uh, reared its head again amongst the press and, and also amongst the riders as well, and, and that is ketone supplements. And uh, Jumbo Visma revealing that they, uh, that they are currently using the, uh, a ketone supplement during the Tour de France, and, uh, and it kind of reignited this rumors and speculation about what they are and whether or not they should be allowed. And, and we sort of thought, well, there's a lot of confusion. Um, there's a lot of kind of mystery surrounding what they actually are. So we thought we should, we should you know, get an expert on and, and, and hear about that. But before we do, Bobby, what's the history of ketones in this sport and, and why is there so much heat surrounding them? I don't think there's so much heat surrounding them because let's just squelch the rumor right away. It's not a prohibited substance. So, okay, it does cost a little bit more than a banana, but it's not like light wheels that cost $5,000 a piece are illegal. It's just kind of depends on on the means that that certain riders certain teams have i don't really think there's that big of a a deal about it but just kind of wanted to get ahead of it for the general public that may not know what ketones are and make sure that they understand and you know i could talk i i looked into this uh far back as 2014 i went up to to oxford to kind of really know what was um what was going on and that's where I met Dr. Brianna Stubbs, who we have on the podcast today. So, Dr. Brianna Stubbs, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Bobby. It's great to chat again. Appreciate you coming on. Now, Dr. Brianna, I think let's just go to the very basic, uh, the, the, the initial question. What are ketones? Okay. So, ketones are a natural substance. And I like to think of it a little bit like sugar. So, our body uses sugar for energy. Our body also uses fat and, and to some extent protein for energy. And ketones are in the most simple sense of 
word, ketones are another substance that our body can use for energy. Now, uh, regular cyclists and regular people, where normally, you know, when we load up our plate, we're consuming some balance of carbs, fats, and proteins. We're not typically consuming very much um, ketones that don't exist in high amounts in food products that we can eat. Um, however, we can make our bodies produce their own ketones, and that's kind of difficult to do. You have to either follow a really strict low-carbohydrate diet, or you go for a while without food, you do fasting. And actually, one thing that I think doesn't get enough airtime is that a typical Tour de France rider might well be producing ketones by the end of a really depleted stage because there's this phenomenon called post-exercise ketosis whereby the body actually ramps up ketone production if you're really, really, really depleted during exercise. But the critical thing is that for our bodies to produce ketones naturally, you have to have very little carbohydrate spare in your body or coming in through the diet. So typically, it's a bit of a trade-off. You can only have... Um, carbohydrates high and then in that case you have low ketones or you don't have very much carbohydrates on board and then you have high ketones and so um in the natural sort of setting let's just say on a normal setting uh you have one or the other and ketone levels um are kind of low in most people because we're normally eating carbohydrate on and off throughout the day and typical tour de france right is obviously rely on non-carbohydrate to do that very very demanding exercise now what we came up with over at oxford university and my professor um it was my sorry my research advisor professor kieran clark and her uh, collaborator dr richard beach over at the nih developed an edible form of ketones and actually they weren't the first people to do this this had been something that had been developed in the 60s um, and been used in some medical settings as well and so it wasn't a completely brand new idea that you could um give ketones out from that came from outside the body and, and use it to give ketones as an energy source. So, but what they developed was what's called a ketone ester, which is a very, very bioavailable, very, very readily absorbed and very, very powerful way of giving the body ketones. And so um, that's what we were working on over there and looking at how giving ketones on top of carbohydrates. So these athletes are just having their normal diet and we would actually give mm -hmm. ketones mixed in with a normal energy drink, normal sugar, sugar, maltodextrin type energy drink and looking at how that could affect performance. And then um, other places over in Belgium, KU Levan, Peter Hasbell's group, have started looking at the other way of using ketones for recovery as well. So in the simplest sense, it's like um, you look at the back of your food, your package of bread, say, and it's got macronutrients, carbohydrates, fats, and some protein. And then we're just adding another um, another sort of level onto that label protect for possible, you know, that you could get energy from ketones as well. And so with that energy, like, you know, you, you sort of mentioned it, uh, we well, did sorry, mention it just there that, that a lot of athletes, well, a lot of riders doing the Tour de France might find themselves in a state um, uh, of ketosis at the end of some of these really demanding stages and, and later in the race. What is the, I guess, the benefit of these for for like the guys in the Tour de France and is it only people doing these really you know these ultra endurance events or is it are you able to get a benefit out on your 5k run in the morning or okay so um so to answer the first question I think it's important to really different really really strongly differentiate between natural production of ketones and taking ketones as a supplement so um, let's talk about natural production of ketones first, because people, in, especially in cycling, are very, very sophisticated about how they train and trying to, and, and their diet, and trying to optimize those things. So it might be that a Tour de France rider might train with low carbohydrate availability 
um, to force the body to burn more fat and that might ramp up ketone production. So you might do either uh, a long block of winter training with quite low carbohydrate availability, or you might do strategic um, sessions, say in the morning, uh, without having had breakfast so that you're fasted and therefore you're kind of trying to make your body better at burning fat. Now, it's important that we're good at burning fat because mm -hmm. there's a much more energy in our body stored as fat. Even in a very, very lean Tour de France rider, for example, they've got many, many thousands of calories stored as fat as compared to we only have about 2,000 calories stored as glucose in our muscles and in our liver. So that, that runs out pretty fast. So... Um, so it's pretty important that we can use fat. And I think one nuance that's often missed is people talk about, oh, you're either burning carbs or burning fat, but actually in metabolism, it's always shades of gray. You're always burning a mixture of the two and really the proportion of the two changes depending on your own metabolism and the foods that you eat during exercise as well. So um, that's sort of natural ketone production and it, it would be beneficial for a cyclist to, to train that system so that they're better at burning fat so that they've got more ability to tap into fat during those longer uh, more lower intensity parts of the stage now ketone supplements um that's different because you've got that extra energy coming in from ketones as well so how does that work well when you take in ketones they are a very very simple molecule um and they're at the body actually will burn ketones partly ahead of carbohydrates so if you drink a drink of ketones all of the energy from those ketones is going to be burnt in advance of the carbohydrate and that's good because that prolongs out the um the amount the amount of time that your glycogen stores are still intact so it, ketones and this is an interesting um area of, of discussion because you know i guess one way to say it is that ketones replace or slightly inhibit carbohydrate use um, they mean that if you have ketones and you spare glycogen and you always also lower the levels of lactic acid that's being produced and we consistently would see two around two millimoles lower levels of lactate lactic acid in the cyclists that we were studying over at the University of Oxford so that might also be beneficial as, as well um, by reducing that kind of burden on the body there as well so it's providing this body an extra energy prolonging out the time that the carbohydrate stores are available and also there's some um it's it's hard to quantify but the, theoretically there's some energetic advantage of burning ketones as well in terms of oxygen efficiency and things like that and that's not um not been consistently proven in or seen in human studies yet but it, it might be dif difficult to detect but we see it in animal studies Interesting. So there's a lot there. And, and I, I guess you kind of answered that at the end as well, that I was going to say, is there p potential issues with if you're, if you're taking ketones and then they're, they're, you know, used by the body preferentially prior to carbohydrate, right? Would that affect your ability to operate at a higher intensity or it would allow your body to continue to do that? Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's a really interesting question. And I think that all, all I can point to is the, the science experiments that we've done so far. And we've done um, VO2 max tests, so like very intense, they're only lasting sort of 20 minutes max and going all the way up to the maximum wattage that cyclists can produce. And it, it doesn't, um, it doesn't take off your ability to perform at that top level, which has been a concern for some people. And I would just say that we haven't seen that. Um, it may, might be different for like a 10 second sprint for like a hundred meter dash. But I think especially, especially when we think about cycling or even five, five K running, I think really ketones are better for the longer, for longer events, the more, the longer the event, the more return you're going to see. 
um, 5K run, you, you mentioned earlier, maybe, maybe not. Um, we did see a performance benefit in a 30-minute rowing machine test. So I, th I think that was kind of, that was smaller than we saw in our cycling trial, which was total duration 90 minutes. So we do think that the longer the duration, the more potential benefit that there is there. But I don't think that it's going to be like a linear relationship. So each time it gets longer, you keep getting more benefit. There's going to be, there's a limit to how much yeah. benefit it offers. Um, it's not, you know, I'm an, I'm an athlete myself. I raced internationally for the British rowing team and now I'm training for the triathlon at a moderately competitive level. And, um, you know, I know that when I'm trying to perform, I need to get all of my nutrition dialed in, all my hydration dialed in. I need to sleep well the night before. I use caffeine. I've been trying out um, nitrate. Um, when I was rowing, we used to do hormonal priming, so like aggressive things in the morning to keep our cortisol high. You know, like there's lots of little things that you can do, and I would say that ketones are an important part of that puzzle. But this isn't this isn't like putting a motor in your bike or um, EPO or anything like that. I don't know whether that's a word that you can say on this podcast. No, no, you can, and that that put I think that's um, very well surmised there at the end is is that there's a lot that goes into performance, as you just said, and. Um, and there's no, you know, silver bullet. There's no, um, and, and well, ketones aren't that silver bullet. They're just a part of the puzzle and part of, I guess, technology and, and, and our greater understanding of the human body. Yes. Thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. Bobby, do you have any final questions? The thing I take away from that the most is that this is not the silver bullet. This is not magic. You still have to do everything else to the best of your ability. Maybe this helps, but have to take care of yourself with the hydration and the fueling no matter what. Brianna, thank you so much. It's great hearing from you again and look forward to uh, learning even more about ketones in the future. Yeah, I think it's like, watch this space. They're so new. They've only been commercially available now since 2018. So I think that there's going to be a lot more interesting science, like some of the stuff coming out around recovery and um, or, you know, looking at um, exactly how best to use and what's the best protocol. So I think we've got a long way to go, but it's a very exciting field. And I'm looking forward to seeing where, how the Peloton are using them next year and in the years to come. Awesome. Thank you so much. Fantastic. And uh, Dr. Brianna being modest there, she just flew in uh, from the UK, I believe, finishing third in an Ironman triathlon. So still quite, uh, quite the athlete. Uh, amazing. That was interesting. A lot of, uh, a lot of insight shedded for me and, um, I think we can kind of put that to bed a little bit. Before we get on with the rest of the show, Bobby, let's, uh, let's hear from our sponsors. Yes. All right. It's time for today's daily dose of Road ID Tour Trivia. To play, head on over to roadid.com slash TDF. Today's question, which former winner of the Tour de France won stage 11 in 2018? Go to roadid.com slash TDF to answer this question and score a chance to win today's daily prize, which is a Theragun G3 Pro. One lucky winner will even take home a $10,000 BMC shopping spree. Again, that's roadid.com slash TDF. That's a good prize, actually. Well worth it. Uh, let's talk about the week gone. We didn't have a show yesterday. We, uh, we, we needed some rest. We've been working pretty hard on this uh, on the airwaves for you guys. But uh, we, we need to have a little look back at the week or the 10 days that was the start of an absolute brutal Tour de France. Yeah, it has been very, very hard, but exciting racing for the fans. I, mm. I don't know about you, Gus, but 
every day there's some drama, some excitement. So yeah, let's just give a real brief rundown of the last 10 stages. So stage one, great sprint by Tunisian taking the yellow jersey. That was pretty impressive. impressive. Uh, Stage two, we had a very dominating win by Team Jumbo Visma. Mm-hmm. and defending the yellow jersey, which is pretty pretty special to do. Stage three was that very exciting, explosive, long-range attack by Alaphilippe, thus taking the, the yellow jersey in the process. Stage four was that sprint royale won by that beautiful lead-out and Viviani coming through with the goods. Mm-hmm. Stage five was that powerful show of strength by Sagan. Stage six was the super win by Dylan Toons on that uphill finish to Planche de la Belle And also it was early Christmas for Ciccone, who took yeah. the yellow jersey almost by surprise in his first Tour de France. Like Nothing like man, an accidental yellow jersey, is there? Lucky little bugger. <laughs> L- lucky little bugger. Yeah. So stage seven was a sprint win by Gronewagen coming back from that terrible stage one crash. He took some days off and man just came through with the goods mm-hmm. then we had that amazing breakaway by de Ghent and that last minute attack by Philippe, thus retaking the the yellow jersey that was um what an amazing stage that was on so many fronts stage nine we had the KG win by daryl empey from that large breakaway where the peloton seemed to take a little bit of the day off i think they finished about 16 minutes behind but from what, what the riders in the peloton tell me, it wasn't really that easy, even though they lost that much time. Stage 10 was won by Van Aert, who survived that major crosswind battle. It was Jumbo Visma's third sprint stage win with three different sprinters, plus the TT, plus the TTT. So that just kind of goes to show you what kind of team they brought to the Tour de France this year and does have me a little bit concerned for the climbing support they'll have for Kreiswijk going into the second half of the Tour de France. Break this down. We have Jumbo Visma, four stage wins in a yellow jersey. Decoin at Quickstep, two wins in the yellow jersey on two different occasions. We got Bora with one stage win and the green jersey with Peter Sagan. Bahrain Merida, one win. Lado Sudal, one win plus KOM plus mm-hmm. the win today. So Yeah, so two wins. Right then and there, those teams are definitely doing their job. Then Dimension Data, don't forget the one-stage win that they have. Then going into the teams that haven't won but still have benefited uh, greatly in one way, shape, or form, you got Ineos, no stage wins, second and third overall right now, plus the white jersey. I think they're just ra- waiting in the wings but in perfect position to strike after the TT and the, the hard weekend of racing coming up. You have Trek Segrafredo. No stage wins, but that yellow jersey, and they were leading the team classification for a couple days there. So, you know, at least they got something already. And what, CCC? CCC had a few stages in the KOM jersey. Yeah. So when you look at it, there's a lot of teams that are whiffing so I should far. note, I think you when you said Dimension Data, you meant Mitchelton Scott. By the way, oh, yes, yeah, you're right. MP. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I was just thinking that. I was like, wait, which stage? Ah, that's yeah. So, there, but there are. You're exactly right. There's like a, a, a small minority of teams have won, and and sort of been dominant in in a lot of the uh, in all of the stages. So, there's definitely, um, you know, Sunweb, Dimension Data, um, Team Ineos. Uh, you know, there's a lot of teams there that still haven't won won a stage and and need to look to do so. But with yesterday being a quote-unquote rest day, but as we've touched on that prior, 
it's often anything but rest. Uh, you got the press conferences, you got your family visits, you got interviews, just, just a lot of distractions, I guess. But my, my guess is that internet in those hotels that those guys were staying up were definitely blowing up with guys watching Netflix episodes, trying to binge on, on some sort of TV show to kind of break up the day a little bit. Speaking to the guys in the Peloton, man, everyone is tired. They've been on pins and needles from day one. They got that constant radio in their ear from the DSs saying, be careful, be careful, be careful. And I think they're just a little bit fried after this very challenging stage to the start of the Tour de France. Yeah, and that's what, like, you know, I was intrigued to hear, and you mentioned it just then, like, from the riders inside the group, it's looked hard, but there's no major time gaps aside, you know, obviously from the day running into the rest day where the, where the, the crosswinds kind of cause the gaps. So even though you know it's hard, there's, it doesn't, you know, on paper, um, it's not blowing apart and, and it looks stressful. So, and that's evident as well. So I was intrigued to hear like what the riders in the, in the group were saying on the rest day and like were they, what were they doing on their rest day? You know, since today's stage wasn't very difficult, and it sounded like a lot of riders, more than normal, took just a day off the bike, which, yep. man, if I was in the tour this year, I don't think I would have gone out riding. Maybe gone out and tooled around on my TT bike like, like some of the riders did. Always a good idea with that stage 13 TT, TT in mind. Just make sure that everything's dialed in there. Uh, but, yeah, not having that challenging stage today was, you know, allowed them to maybe mentally and physically recover a little bit more than they would if there was a TT following the rest day or a very selective stage following the rest day. And before we move on to, to today's stage and, and just touch on that, what sort of went down there, I just want to ask one question. Like, what's it like mentally getting back into it after a rest day? Well, mentally and physically, like you hear a lot of athletes talk about how their legs are shit the day after a rest day, right? They sort of, they, they're, they're creeping. That kind of defies logic to most people because they're like, well, you've rested, you should feel good, right? <laughs> what happens? Like what happens physiologically, psychologically that makes people feel shitter after they rest? Oh man, that, that's a good question. And it, it varies from Grand Tour to Grand Tour. I just think that they're out of that normal kind of schedule that they've had for the first 10 days or even two weeks because, you know, the lead up into the tour, they're kind of on that same sort of schedule. Um, but I think... It's a little bit more mental rather than physiological. Yep. And I mean, after all, is rest a bad thing? I mean, these guys are exhausted. Just cool your jets. And, yeah. But yeah, it's that mental thing that we all, even on a rest day, oh, I got to go out and spin for an hour. Why? If you're only going to spin for an hour, just stay off your bike. Put your feet up on the wall or something. I don't think you really need to go out there, get all kitted up because... You know, that that hour spin is nothing but a mental thing. It's not doing anything. It's not a lot of people think, oh, I'm going to go out and spin out the legs, get the lactic acid out of the legs. <laughs> I'm sorry, the, the lactic acid is long gone. <laughs> there you go. Bobby J with some real talk there. Don't waste your time with the with the with the uh, with the one hour spin. Just put your feet up, put your feet up against the wall and uh, and just relax. Play with your kids, yeah. you know, catch up on some chores around the house you know, do, do your taxes, all that stuff that you put off. But yeah, just take the day off. Taxes. <laughs> Relaxing doing taxes. Nice one. <laughs> <laughs> Today's stage, let's just touch on it really quickly. Pretty straightforward day. 
um, 167-odd K. Um, pretty straightforward day. The break went from the gun. Let's talk through how it was won because it was actually quite a... Uh, well, let's talk through the last 30K. It's quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, they didn't give them much of a leash today. So, again, I, d- I think the tensions were quite high. Mm-hmm. I think with that win going into that area of France and the hiding that many of those teams had to take from their DSs, their managers, their sponsors. I don't think it was a very relaxing day. We saw quite a few crashes. Mm. And especially going into that last 30K, I think they were white-knuckled, just just praying that nothing happened again like yesterday. Because, you know, make one mistake, learn from it. But if you do that again the next day, there's going to be hell to pay, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, that... that that's really sucked with, with 30K to go. There was that big uh, pile up. Looked like Tepstra uh, abandoned the race. I believe he yeah. abandoned the race. Is yeah, that he did, correct? Yeah. yeah, apparently, yeah. like, I mean, he was holding his shoulder. The race, uh, the race doctor said, yeah, get in the car and go get that checked out. So he unfortunately um, had to abandon. Ciccone came down and was moving pretty slowly. Uh, he was back on the bike and, and rode to the finish with Nitzolo, who also looks pretty bad, and, uh, and one of the EF guys there as well. So, I mean, that's got to be, you know, knowing that tomorrow's the first of of many brutal mountain days coming up, that's got to be a big blow, right? Nursing some injuries going into that, into the the coming days. Yeah, but getting back to how the race was won, normally you would say in the last couple hundred meters. Yeah. But today, we saw things could have gone sideways for Caleb Ewan. He actually got caught in on the side of a road, had to clip out, lost one of his teammates, and for him to keep his mental composure and to get back into mm. the group and not let that affect him, to me, that was the moment of the race. That, that was the race-winning moment. That, that's, that's an amazing focus to come back from something like that inside of, what, 10K to go? And, and the sprint, again, you know, very well let out, very, uh, very safe. Everyone was, was playing you know, quite, quite uh, nicely with each other there. But, man... I just am so happy for Caleb Ewan. I've picked him multiple times. You've picked him multiple times. He's, mm-hmm. he's a fan favorite. And for him to just, you know, Gronewagen got a gap. It looked like he was just going to power away with it. And then little Caleb just got into his slipstream and had enough to get around him at the end. So congratulations to Caleb. His, his team is one of those teams that has obviously profited the most since results-wise since the beginning of the tour. And um, hopefully we'll see him uh, in, in Paris finishing on the Champs-Élysées. Yeah, that was a fantastic sprint by him and, and, and a few, few tired-looking sprinters there uh, following in behind Viviani and Sagan. Let's uh, hear from the Superfan. He's got a question for us. It's time for Superfan. Hey, guys. Thanks for getting me on today. What an exciting stage. I love a good sprint finish, a tight one like today made it worth it. Great, great finish. Uh, I wanted to ask you quickly in your interviews with Rod Ellingworth and Alan Lim, I sensed a lot of mutual respect between you guys. Bobby, can you talk a little bit about the coaching world? Who were your coaching mentors and who would you say you learned the most from? Maybe, maybe go through a little, little list of your favorite athletes you've coached and why. Thanks so much guys. Super fan. Yeah, I think that becoming a coach, especially as an ex-rider, that you take little bits and pieces of every coach that you had. So starting with my dad, there's things today that I incorporate into my coaching that came from my dad. Then my next coach of, of note after that was Chris Carmichael. 
And there's quite a bit that I, I still use from him. Max Testa was another, another good influence on me. And after that, I, for, for quite a few years there, I kind of coached myself or didn't really have that, that coach per se that, that was kind of, you know, helping me out. Bjarne Reese taught me a lot. I really enjoyed the time that I had with him. But it was, um, I say the two most influential people that I've had in my life was, were Rod Ellingworth and Tim Kerrison from my, my time at Sky. And I think it's just a, a giant melange of all those guys and I kind of take out what I can use and it still has my personality and leave off some of the other things. But yes, it's an accumulative effect, I think, that all those people that influence you. And yeah, Rod and Tim are amazing people and they're right on the top of that list, you know, maybe maybe right on the podium with, with my dad. So um, yeah, the, the, the riders, I don't really like talking about the riders that I've worked with in the past, you know, because mm-hmm. that's in the past. Uh, I always felt that there's a little bit of that, you know, privacy issue there. But um, everyone knows that, you know, I worked with, with Richie when he was very young and Chris when he was very young. So, um, yeah, other than that, you know, I, I just enjoy coaching. And the one thing that really gets me is I will go to the mat for someone. They don't have to be that, the biggest champion. But if they, have, if they show work ethic... And if they show the desire to improve, even if they're not one of the top champions, I really like working with those sort of guys. And, you know, once, you know, you can change a lot in a rider when he's young. Uh, when, you, when you start working with older riders, it's a little bit more difficult. But, yeah, working with those young riders with that amazing work ethic is just a dream come true for, for any coach. Let's, uh, so today we were planning on, you know, the theme was going to be hotel rooms and we're kind of going to, it's a big part of cycling, I think, and uh, we were going to dive into that, but we've had a few other little bits and pieces that we wanted to add, so we haven't had the chance to, to dive in as deep as we would, but I understand that uh, you were able to chat yesterday, Bobby, on the rest day to uh, your old roommate and one of your best mates, Jens Voigt, so before we get to that interview, I just wanted to ask you, 12 days into the race... These guys have been on the road now for upwards of two weeks, possibly longer with training camps prior to the tour. At this stage in the race, you know, you're finishing this stage. What are you praying for when you get to the hotel? Like a kettle, an air conditioning, an iron, maybe iron out your kit. I don't know, a fridge. What are you, what are you looking for? <laughs> Steamer. First and, first and foremost is you want to get into a room that has at least one big bed. And you just pray that it's your day to have that big bed, because a lot of the team, a lot of the hotels, like Novotel, for example, they have one big bed, like king size sort of American bed, and yeah. then one kind of like little pull-out couch bed. And let me tell you, you don't want to be staying at a hotel for say like two or three days, like some of them may have stayed uh, during and over the rest day, and be stuck on that little tiny cot pull-out bed when you look over and you're your roommate is just sprawled out on this big king size bed. So th- that, that's first and foremost. Um, AC for me is huge. Um, luckily, like I, like, like I said, I, I roomed a lot with Jens, so he wasn't one of those Euro guys that was scared of the AC as if it was going to get them sick. Yep. That was always frustrating. Um, I also brought a fan, so you had to have a roommate that, that liked the fan because not everybody likes a fan. But that comfortable bed with a really comfortable pillow goes a long way. 
Um, another thing, because I wouldn't turn on the TV or watch the TV. I know Jens, that was one of his th- first things that he got into the room was the the TV check, as he called it. But yeah. I didn't really need that. I didn't really like that so much. But yeah, having an internet, like you need to be get on the internet. Um, some of those hotels don't have internet and it's 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 a bummer right like you yeah this day and age you need that yeah, sort of exactly thing. yeah yeah and one of the other things that is kind of funny because you know in in europe you have you know showers and bathtubs and a combination of them from time to time but right around now like mm-hmm. after the rest day and you know halfway through the tour you're looking for a hotel room bathroom that actually has a bathtub because it's probably about time to shave your legs again you know, you're probably getting those little bristly hairs that are making the swaneers complain that it's hurting their hands when they're giving you a rub. So, yeah, those those uh, small hotel rooms where you have no room to put open both suitcases, that is just miserable and should be absolutely outlawed in the Tour de France. But, hey, France does is not the country that historically has the best hotel rooms. No, and we, and we do hear that a lot from writers uh, that constant uh gamble as to what you're going to get when you come out the other end how about we hear from uh how about we hear from you and you and Jens yesterday on the rest day of the tour yeah it was it was pre-recorded um he was trying to take a day off so I actually caught him uh swimming he was down at the river relaxing having his me time alone and uh when I said hey do you want to do this interview he said hey can we do it in about an hour because I'm down here at the river should I swim across (laughs) <laughs> and I'm like, uh, maybe not. But he did wind up crossing the river and getting back and getting on to me. So enjoy this next interview. And um, thank you very much to Jens Vogt for, for making the time in his rest day to do this. So today, our theme is hotel rooms. Our special guest, Mr. Jens Vogt, one of my closest friends and roommates for many, many years on several teams. Jens, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure, and thanks for having me. Okay, we all know that hotel rooms during the tour can be hit and miss. You know, the Tour de France says that each team has the same amount of stars at the end of the race. So some days you may get a couple good hotel rooms in a row, and then maybe some poor ones. But, you know, we know that all three-star hotels in France aren't the same, right? To the listeners out there, the stars, one star is basically a total dive hotel on the side of a highway, and the five-star is more like one of those fancy chateaus that, that we often get to stay in. Jens, tell us a little bit about your routine when you get into, let's say, let's go in the middle, let's say a three-star hotel. Like, what's your routine when you enter that hotel room? I guess first thing you check, is there an air condition? And if there is one, get that thing cranking. If there's no air condition, you open the window for fresh air. And very, very important, I learned that with many painful lessons, keep the curtains closed. So open the window, but make sure the curtains cover the window because there's a million mosquitoes out there and you do not want to lose an hour of sleep or waking up at like 3 a.m., grab a towel and just kill 25 mosquitoes in your room. So these are the first two things you check. Then, I mean, hey, we all bite nerds. The next thing you do, switch on the TV and try to see if you find the replay of the Tour de France. 
because not many people know as a bike rider you do not see too much for example yesterday let's take michael kwiatkowski who happened to be in the first group working all he saw was the 15 to 20 riders they were swapping off with him he didn't know exactly how many people are behind how many groups are behind so he wants to watch the show to see what actually happened behind my group or the other way around somebody like uh, george bennett who lost about 10 minutes yesterday which hurts me because i love that kid to pieces and i thought this year he's good for a top 10 even a top six maybe so george bennett lost 10 minutes yesterday he's gonna switch on the tv to see what happened in the front how did it split up who made it and what went wrong right so you also learn something by watching your own race in the replay so these are the first two things you would do well and then uh, yeah you get off your clothes and take a shower if you did not have a shower yet in the team bus then you go for a shower apart from that check what time your massage is lay on bed legs up and reading a book reading a book i like that one i like that one yeah, so, you know, we roomed together quite a few years, and I'm interested now that you you probably don't share a room that often with, with people with the job that you have now, but towards the end of your career when we weren't rooming together, what were some of the little idiosyncrasies of some of the other guys? I know with me, you know, I always had my earplugs, my eye shades, I had a fan, always on my computer or reading a book. But what were some of the other tricks that guys may have brought in their suitcase that was was interesting? It became more and more common that people brought their own little like massage equipment pieces, bullshit I would call them, like these rollers on your legs and foam rolls and tennis balls to put them underneath your back and crack your back and whatnot. They became more and more popular. Some people brought like their own protein powders, you know, they, they went, look, I like this taste, I like this product, I feel this works the best for me. Or they had, you know, like a recovery drink without lactose or without whatever, any allergic uh, stuff in there. I saw a lot of that. I saw people bringing like a, a pillow from whatever, their wife, their kids, bringing little, you know, little uh, fluffy animals. The kids gave them, hey, daddy, take this, uh, you know, to the Tour de France. So you always will be reminded on me. So some of, some of it like, you know, really uh, personal stuff. Everybody has a laptop or iPad or, or a smartphone these days. Um, one of the funniest things I saw, and I'm not going to mention who it is, but... It's a very, very good bike rider by now. But then he was a young kid. And he was sitting on bed. You know, we have uh, the, the two single beds. So he sits on a bed next to me. On his own bed, of course. Don't get this wrong. <laughs> um, and then he opens up the laptop. And all he watches was the cockpit of a car. You couldn't even see what car it is. The camera focused on the, the, the reps and the speed. So, like... 10 minutes, 15 minutes, he just watches, watched cars taking off and going up to 100, 200, 250 miles. So all you hear is like this noise, like jam, burn, burn, burn. and you could see the, the speed going up and the reps going up. And like, oh, what is that? And he goes, that is just the coolest thing ever. I, I, that relaxes me so much and I love it so much. So he was just watching cars going fast. There you go. So, so it wasn't like a video game. It wasn't a video. It wasn't. No, no, no. It was real life cameras of, of like uh, close ups of race cars, of sports cars, just accelerating from zero to 200 miles. And he watched it for like 10, 15 minutes, like whatever, 10, 15 different cars. I was blown away. Would never cross my mind that somebody would do that. But hey, there you go. Everybody needs their, their thing to relax, right? 
Um, to give Indeed. the to give the viewers a little bit better idea of life inside a team hotel, one thing that always used to crack me up was that we always we always thought or we acted like we were the only people in the hotel, right? When it was time to go down for massage, when it's hot, you're just sitting there, maybe in your underwear with your shirt off, laying in your bed. And most people would, when it was time to go to a massage, they would put on a pair of shorts, a t-shirt, maybe a pair of flip-flops and, and walk to the room to get a massage. But I always just couldn't believe that often guys would basically just walk down the hallway in their underwear with no shirt on and these these surprise guests that were paying guests in the hotel were just totally shocked to see this young, skinny, very weird, tan line kid walking towards them, basically naked, right? So it just it's just funny to think back to those days where that seemed common. Like you didn't even think twice. But those poor people that were staying at the hotel, they they had it they had quite a surprise, didn't they? Indeed. Um, and I mean, I try to be at least uh, uh, decently uh, dressed, but um, I believe sometimes hotels or other guests thought we were more like Genghis Khan and his tribe invading the hotel and taking over the hotel, you know, like a bunch of barbarians. We talked loud, uh, we did crack jokes, uh, we used, um, let's say, grown-up languages, um, and um, to even go further, I needed like three days after the Tour finished to detox from that and come back uh, to, to normal. I mean, you know, you cannot do that with your kids and your wife at home, you know. And um, like a really funny example here would be, you know, you get to your room. Then you get all the, the clothes you used to wear during the stage, your race kit. You put that in the wash bag, open the hotel room door and throw it into the hotel hall miraculously it disappeared and it, it ended up hanging up washed dried and folded at your door the next morning now try that at home you know just put your dirty wash in a bag throw it out of your uh, bedroom and expect you know your wife somehow to pick it up and wash it and fold it for you for the next morning that just doesn't fly at home so I always needed like a little bit of like readapting to normal life standards after three weeks Tour de France. Very good point. Okay, Jens, let's ask a couple questions about roommate etiquette, right? So what are the rules of etiquette for a roommate? You know, you're, you're in there, sometimes you're in there with your best friend, other times you're in there with a total new person. What are those things that you kind of expect with a new roommate that you pay attention to? It could be, you know, turning on the lights, um, you know, not not turning on the lights in, at night when you have to go to the bathroom. What What is the etiquette? I mean, we know that those hotel rooms in, in Europe are pretty small, so you're living basically right on top of each other. Well, I always tried with my roommate to go, okay, there's your bed and that's your side of the room. This is my bed and my side of the room. Just don't throw your shizai on my side keep it to your place and I keep mine to my place so we cannot get it mixed up uh, tomorrow because we had uh, I had a teammate Andy Schleck awesome bike rider and he one day he showed up with um, a jersey of um, I believe it was Michael Zanster who had retired the year before and he had a jersey of him at the race the year after the guy retired and with a rain vest of Marty Breschel 
You know, I mean, that's just Andy. Andy just, you know, if Andy enters the room, it takes him 21.5 seconds. And the room looks like a bomb went off. He was, I guess, up there, top three with, well, I guess, the messiest roommates. It was totally funny and hilarious, but he was not organized at all. So you try to keep a little bit of control. Nowadays, with uh, these uh, smartphones, we agreed, listen, if you need to go to the restroom at night, just use the light on your phone. Don't switch on the lights in the room because I want to sleep. You know, and normally it's enough if everybody just uses common sense. Just behave like a normal human being and then also you get treated like a human being. One of the coolest things that I remember was with Chris Boardman. You probably roomed with him as well. Was he was the first guy that would actually go in when he had to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. He would actually sit down. So that not to wake up his roommate with the the splashing in the of of the water in the toilet. I thought I thought that was pretty amazing for a guy of of his stature to actually think like that. Are we actually allowed to talk about this on the podcast? Well, you know, this is this is normal things that happen in a yeah. hotel room, right? Like, of course, because uh, that was actually one of the first things that crossed my mind, but I didn't dare to say it. Yes, you go to your roommate, go, hey, listen, why don't we both just sit down and keep it clean and proper? <laughs> Right? Common sense. Just behave like a human being. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I have, I'm going to ask you two questions. One, what's your best hotel story? I have one in mind for you that I'll, I'll, I'll get into right after. And your worst hotel story. And I've got a good one for that as well. So start, start us off. Story. Start okay, us off. Best hotel. Okay. Worst, uh, best hotel? Yeah. Best hotel, tourist with uh, two other francs, and we went into Switzerland, and we had these absolutely fantastic chateau, like, what, 500 years old, on the lake. And we had lunch and brekkie on, on this huge terrace, viewing, over, like, with a top view over, this, over the lake, large rooms, ceilings, like, uh, you know, four meters, whatever, 10 feet, 12 feet uh, tall ceilings. Uh, we lived like kings. It was absolutely fantastic. And to make it even better, that was in these more modern days when we did bring our own chef, our own cook. So we actually, we really lived like the kings. We slept like kings, we eat like kings, and we had this wonderful view. So that old chateau in Switzerland during the tour, that was my highlight. Okay, what's your, what's your worst hotel story? The worst is one of these uh, little um, little highway hotels, Curiat or Formula One or whatever they were called. Um, and yeah, woke up at the night and, and, and went like something feels funny. So I had to, she had to switch on the light. And we had like ants, like a whole army of ants in the room, in the bed, in the sheets, under the sheets. They were just walking across the room. And it, it was just terrible, you know. So we tried to clean up as good as we could and uh, moved the beds out of the way from that little street or pass these ants were using. And it was just terrible, you know. We didn't really sleep much or we didn't sleep much. And it was pretty bad. Oh, actually, I have another one. We are, uh, um, you know how it is at the tour very often. You go, we eat at nine, Right. We eat at nine. The kitchen understands. We sit down at nine and then we wait until 9.45. And then we serve you cold pasta. We were cooking since 12 a.m. 
So the pasta was eight hours in the water, but they spent another two hours to let it get all cold and soft and soggy before they served it to us. So a teammate of mine went, hey, uh, excuse me, this is cold pasta. He goes, no, it's out of the kitchen, it's warm. And my teammate, Kurt Asler Arbsen from Norway, a Viking, wouldn't take shit from no one, said, excuse me, this is cold. The waiter insisted, no, it's freshly out of the kitchen, it's warm. Kurt Asler grabbed the hand of the waiter, put the whole hand of the waiter straight onto his pasta plate, said, okay, now you tell me, is this warm or is this cold? And the waiter went, oh, excuse me more, yes, it's cold. Oh so my gosh, go. that is great, that is great. Well, I tell you, I have a favorite story, hotel story with, with you. We were at the Tour of California the first year that it started. I think that was 2006. And they messed up our hotel and had to wind up putting us at the Four Seasons Hotel in Santa Barbara. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. Okay. So I was a little late, and I come into the room, and it's this beautiful oceanfront room. I walk in and there's Jens in this bathrobe with his little flip-flops on, you know, that come with, you know, um, you know, like a spa treatment sort of look. And he's macking down on this big, huge bag of beef jerky. And I kind of look at him and said, Jens, wow, uh, you comfortable? He's like, yeah, look at all this free stuff in the room. And I just got a total kick out of that because like I, I said, Jens, we're in America. That's a mini bar. We're, we're, it, that beef jerky isn't free. And I remember I went over to the little card and I said, I hope you enjoy that $35 bag of beef jerky. And you just had this <laughs> look of terror on your face, look of terror on your face. But that visual of you in that bathrobe, you know, in that beautiful room eating beef jerky, it just looked like a cat that ate the canary. You seem pretty happy there. I was in happy spot for sure. And my worst hotel ever, and we all know that, you know, a hot hotel room, you just cannot sleep because if your body cannot get rid of the, the heat, you're not going to sleep. You may close your eyes, but you're not really going to sleep. But I was in a hotel room. Imagine this. It's, it's, it's hot. It's sticky. Like you said, the windows are open. There's mosquitoes everywhere. But I was so tired. I just put in my earplugs and my eye shades, and I knew I was going to get eaten by mosquitoes, but I, I just didn't care. I was that tired. And then in the middle of the night, all of a sudden, I feel somebody step up onto my bed and kind of straddle me. And I'm like, wait a second, what, what, what's going on here? And I very slowly take off my eye shades. I look up and there's one of our teammates, Fabrice Gougou, naked as a jaybird, just hanging 10, his junk like right in my face and what he was doing, I didn't know what he was doing. I thought maybe he was having like a, you know, a sleepwalking episode and I was going to be you know, his, his uh, concubine for the night or something. So I just started freaking out like, Fabrice, stop, stop, stop. I look up and what he was actually doing was trying to get to the mosquitoes that were above my bed. And man, that was just a nightmare. I woke up in the morning and it looked like someone had been murdered in our room there was so many mosquitoes that were dead splattered on the on the, on the wall around our room it honestly looked like there was a, a a serial killer that came in there and blood splatter everywhere that was absolutely the worst night i've ever had in a hotel room there we go there we go jens thank you very much for your for your time i know this was a little bit uh difficult to to coordinate because it's your rest day there at the tour but one last question as an overall information for our listeners 
overall in general, what do you, what country do you feel has the most the best hotel rooms, the most consistent hotel rooms? I guess well, I would have to say the U.S. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's tour of Missouri or uh, tour of Georgia back in the days, tour of California, of course, uh, the U.S. Pro Challenge or tour of Colorado. Always king size, queen size beds. You know, top quality beds, larger rooms. I would say it's um, yeah, gotta be in the U.S. Let's on let's, the other side. Yeah, let's yes. say let's say in Europe. Let's keep it in Europe. What is the the Europe the best country in Europe as far as hotel rooms going consistently? Consistently, I, I would have to say it's, it's the Germans. Things have to be in order. So I think I would pick Germany. Top Bavaria, top of Germany. The riders liked uh, the races because we always said good hotels. Good answer. Good answer. I would have said Spain. I did a lot of racing in Spain. I didn't do so much racing in Germany. So for me, it's Spain. Spain always seemed to have, you know, nicer, more modern hotel rooms, you know, decent sized rooms, decent sized beds, you know, nice granite um, kind of bathrooms and stuff like that. But for me, by far, the least consistent and the worst was France. Agreed. They are, yes, on the bottom of the list, no question asked. <laughs> and they're not even close to second last on the list. They are really far, far, far behind dead last on this list. That is for damn sure. Okay, Jens, thank you very much. Have fun for the rest of the tour. Enjoy the rest of your rest day. You deserve it. And uh, we'll be watching you on TV. All right, you guys have fun. Listen to this. And let's try another one maybe next week, in the last second week or the last week of the tour. I love put your socks on. And there we go, Jens and Bobby. On the rest day, Jens, a little tuckered out from his swim across the river, uh, but appreciate him coming on the show. And uh, yeah, that was nice. Thanks, guys. Tomorrow's stage, it's a big one. It's a uh, 209.5 Ks, 11 kilometer neutral, two cat ones. Bobby, what's it gonna? What, what what's tomorrow looking like? You know, coming off of the rest day and then the sprinters day today, I think it's going to be a chance for the. The, the climbers to kind of test their form a little bit, do a little form check. I think it's going to, a breakaway is going to go. There's some KOM points on the line. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see Tim Wellens in that, in that front group. Yep. Um, but I don't really envision anybody really taking any major chances because the time trial is the next day. And I, I understand Ineos doesn't have to do anything. They just need to follow now. They, they profited so much yesterday by so many of those guys losing time that if I was them, I would just stay on the wheels. Some of those guys are going to be forced into thinking that they need to make a desperate move, you know, throw a haymaker or a Hail Mary, whatever you want to call it. Yep. But I would be very cautious of the energy expenditure on a day like tomorrow, which is not going to be that crucial. Just because you have the time trial the next day. That's a quick turnaround from a, a, a stage like this into a time trial. And I know it's not an uphill finish. The last climb, the last category one climb is 30K from the finish. Yep. So I, I believe it's going to be a breakaway. The riders, the GC riders may test each other a little bit. Mm -hmm. And it'll be a reduced group at the at the end. I don't see any sprinters making it over those two category ones. I mean, it's the Parasort. The Parasort is one of the coolest <laughs> climbs, one of the most iconic climbs of the Tour de France. But the, the last climb with 30K to go, 
the Horquette de Ancien. I've never heard of that climb. I don't think I've ever done it. And I'm not aware of what kind of descent that is down into the finish, but it looks like it's a pretty good one going from the top of that climb downwards. So if, you know, there'll be some guys catching on if they come off the back in the last K of the, the climb, but it could be, you know, full gas. So I, 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 I think those guys better just keep their powder dry, check each other, and then save as much as they can for the time trial the following day. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think that given the time trial, it's going to be more of a day of, of as you said, little form test and uh, mainly seeing if anyone gets found out. I guess one of the big question marks is Philippe, right? He's in the jersey. He's got a reasonable buffer. Obviously descends really well um, and is sort of shaping up to be like a legitimate contender uh, for the, you know, for the finish in Paris. What do you reckon he's, you know, what do you reckon he, he, he's going to be doing tomorrow? We're going to learn a lot about him tomorrow because you got to add up the, the efforts that he's done since the beginning of the tour. And they have been a lot. Very explosive. You know, he's, he's profited winning a stage, having the yellow jersey. Just, just fantastic. But, mm-hmm. man, where, where's, where's the ceiling here? Yeah. I, I do believe that he'll survive tomorrow. I do believe he'll lose some time in the time trial. He'll still keep the jersey, I believe. Mm-hmm. But then those final mountain, those two mountain stages over the weekend, that's going to be tough. So I'm going to expecting a reduced group sprint or finish. I'm actually going to pick him as my favorite tomorrow because I still think he's he's clicking along on on all cylinders. And man, ride that wave all the way to the beach. When you have those sort of legs, just keep going. And when they finally fall off, you know what? You've got a lot you've got a lot already in the bank, so don't worry about it. That's it, right? Go big or go home. And that seems to be the sentiment of Alaphilippe, which has made the first week of the Tour de France an absolute blinder. That's a good pick. Um, I'm going to go with a real outside shot, Mike Woods. He, uh, he let himself, he got dropped today early on. When I say early on, he like with a group of other climbers, so evidently saving his legs. He'll have some leash because he's lost quite a bit of time. And uh, I reckon tomorrow maybe could you know he's got a little he's a little explosive so tomorrow could be a day where where he might find himself in the break and uh, and go to the line but we shall see that's uh, time to call it thank you so much for a wonderful show thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in you're uh, you're the best fans in the world as Bobby said not everyone likes a fan but everyone loves a super fan and so we know all you guys out there are super fans so we love you uh, you can catch us at velenews.com. You can catch us on SoundCloud, on iTunes, um, Vela News Voices. Put your socks on. Until tomorrow, thank you so much, guys. Bobby? Thanks, Gus. Thanks, Brianna. And to all you out there, don't forget to put your socks on. Nice. Inspired by the fabled jerseys of the tour, Road ID has rolled out a limited edition Tour de France wrist ID. Unlike any other IDs in their lineup, this incredible ID comes with four interchangeable bands, yellow, polka dot, green, and white. This is a $50 value, available in limited quantities for only $34.99. Head on over to roadid.com slash tdfband to get yours before they run out.